Sometimes the truth is right in front of us. Sometimes that truth is concrete and believable. And sometimes that truth is a hollow figure of what we thought a truth should be. And certainly the truth is not a shambling mess we can only see when the lights are off. Right? Uh, <laughs> I'm not so sure. Nonetheless, we will look into it. Broadcasting on WCRX 88.1 FM, directly from Chicago's underground, I'm Peyton Zignego with Channel Veil, vale, lifting up that which divides the known from the unknown. When we stare into the abyssal night, we are often met with the uncanny feeling as though something is looking back. It's a something we cannot see, nor truly confirm is actually real, but there it sits, and it watches, and it allows itself to be known just enough to let us feel a fragment of its presence. However, that's just something vast and unknowable, something we'll only ever catch glimpses of, because if we truly were to see the magnitude of what was looking back at us, one can only hope that day doesn't come. But that is a fear so large and broken that we shall only ever feel just a hint of it, a simple drop in a sea. A real terror lies in making direct sight of an entity whose purpose is wholly unknown, but derived from a place you know to be dark. When you can see the very thing that haunts you, there is little you can do to reassure yourself that it can't see you in turn. There is little you can do to hide. Duck under covers if you will, but we both know that you saw each other, and in that moment the fates of your fears was sealed. Or I'm just being dramatic. Well, maybe a little bit, but it would really be a discredit to our reports today if I was exaggerating. I'll leave that up to you to decide. Whatever helps you sleep at night. But don't go to sleep yet. The night is young, and you still have a full broadcast from me to listen to. Nadia would be really disappointed in our numbers if I started telling our listeners to go to sleep as soon as I put us live on air. And I don't need to give her another reason to put post-it notes on my microphone instructing me to be good while live. So, we press ever onwards. Do not succumb to the call of sleep this early into things. I appreciate it. Now, Unfortunately, this week we were not invited to any dinner parties or inviting ourselves on boat trips that will never happen. Us being invited seems to have been an outlier. Or, you know, now that I think about it, maybe we shouldn't have said that getting invited out meant our host for the evening would end up being met with the crippling realization that they were their own greatest fear. That was an outlier. We don't normally do that. Usually. Okay, well, either way, this was a strictly in-office week spent cleaning the station and adjusting the security cameras. The sun has been setting at an angle that caught one of the cameras at just the right place so that once a day I would get flashbanged by the feed in my office when I just wanted to look outside. We fixed that. As she was outside, making sure my cameras were at the perfect angle yet again, Nadia was approached by a pair of very distraught-looking sisters. Nothing unusual for us, I'll say clearly. We've set ourselves up to be the people who are approached when you're distraught, and have no one else who will listen to you. And so, we keep broadcasting the message that you are more than welcome to do so. 
Nadia is a real natural in calming people down to get their stories clear out of them. Nadia is a needlepoint artist, more so than a journalist. She pulls the threads from those she interviews, creating a full picture from the fragments of string spun from people who believe they have seen the impossible. Within moments, Nadia had them seated in our station, tea in hands, and notebook in front of her, ready to listen. At first, she thought that the sisters were simply grieving the loss of their youngest brother, which was true, but there was something much more sinister at play. But I, I get ahead of myself. Let's see here, starting at the beginning of the report. Uh, the two sisters identified themselves as Caroline Glynn and Emma Brigham, two of five, Henry, Rebecca, and Edward, the deceased. Rebecca declined to come in to give a statement or for further questioning. However, the great news is that we have two witnesses willing to speak with us, which doesn't happen often. Story corroborated. Journalism win for Channel Vale. We don't get many of those, as far as getting multiple people to speak with us goes, as indicated by most of our reports being brought in by the one and only person who will talk to us. And even in most cases, it seems like they don't want to be talking either. Well, congratulations, Nadia, for this unprecedented level in our journalism. <laughs> so, our two sisters. They began by sharing that the Glynn siblings had gotten together at their late father's home following the death of Edward. Caroline made the note that the three sisters were prone to a bit of gossip and had begun to speak about the final interaction between their two brothers. According to them, Henry and Edward had gotten into a bit of a fight before Edward passed. Emma made a note that the doors of the house never fully closed and would get stuck on themselves as the wood swelled with the seasons and humidity, hence the clarity with which their conversation was caught. Emma also noted to us that her sister Rebecca, the one who had declined to come in and speak with us, was seemingly on edge while they sat and spoke. She also noted that Edward's death was not followed by an examination of any type. Henry, a practicing physician, was certain he succumbed to gastric distress of some variety. They both said he was very concrete about this fact. A few red flags were raised, but the interview continued. That night, the sisters were in the home's study, working and sewing, as they spent many nights doing. It grew dark as the sun receded, so they asked Rebecca, the third sister, to turn on the lights of the room. She refused. She claimed she preferred the darkness, despite the clear detriment that would be to writing and sewing and generally seeing what you're working on. It's also bad for your eyes. Don't tell Nadia I'm making note of this, but she is absolutely the worst when it comes to remembering to turn on the lights to read. I come into the office and she'll be hunched over her desk using the light from my outdoor security camera screens to read reports. And... And I've earned my first through-the-glass glare from my field reporter, Nadia. I'm just saying it would be better for you to turn on the lamp I bought you once in a while. It's Bigfoot-themed. I thought you'd love it. Nadia has sat back down. For now. <sighs> I know I will incur her wrath again at some point, but I may continue. None of the sisters believed this rather unfounded claim that Rebecca would rather work in the dark, so they forced her to turn a lamp on, much like I do. However, upon the lamp's arrival in the room, a strange vestige appeared upon the wall, a person's shadowy figure, but one not connected to any of the women. When Emma and Caroline laid eyes upon this shadow, they panicked, 
for surely nothing in this room was capable of making such an image, an image that looked exactly like the outline of late Edward. Rebecca was reported to have maintained some semblance of composure, but, as it would happen, she had been haunted by this echo of her brother every night since he passed. That night was the third. She was well aware that no piece of furniture nor corporeal person was making that shadow appear. Henry then entered the room, and when he saw the shadow, he was overcome. According to the sisters, he began to practically tear about the room, looking for the source of the accursed shadow, to no avail, as Rebecca would have reminded him. Henry frenzied himself, throwing himself against furniture, pulling and pushing things through beams of light to find what piece of the room was painting awful images on the wall. But none were. And when the dust settled on his rampage, the room was in disarray and the shadow remained unmoved and undisturbed. Everyone's back was turned to the image when they left for dinner. It was decided unanimously that they would not be convening back in the study that evening. A choice endorsed by us. However, Henry only spent a few hours out of the room when, around 9pm that night, he suddenly got to his feet and returned to the study. Emma told us that she was the one who followed, willing to peek in through the door too swollen to shut. According to her, in that room, her brother stood with her father's sword, raised in combat against the shadow, as he frantically swung and stabbed at the wall, creating clear marks everywhere the shadow was projecting itself. It came to no surprise that he was unsuccessful in ridding the shadow from the wall. Stabbing shadows is not a choice endorsed by us. With all the commotion he was causing, the sisters went to grab a drink before bed. The movement of furniture and frantic pacing of their brother's feet continued into the night, becoming just one of the reasons the sisters struggled to sleep. After the funeral for Edward, no one but Henry went into the study. The morning after the funeral, Henry made the strangely out-of-the-blue announcement that he had been called into the city by a fellow doctor for a three-day trip. Emma said that his being called out for a consultation was not an uncommon occurrence, but was strange considering he had several patients in the area that he should have had reason to stay for. Caroline said he was slightly vague with his explanation. Nonetheless, he hopped on a train and into the city he went, despite leaving all three sisters with an unease and a room in which they refused to enter. For three days, they went about their lives in the house without their brother, nor the wish to allow light into the study. However, on the night when their brother was slated to return, he wasn't on the train he was meant to be. The three sisters waited. That's when Emma paused, seemingly uncomposed for the first clear time in the interview. Nadia had written that despite the haunting events they were recounting, Emma Brigham maintained an air of composure throughout. Until this moment, something compelled her to rise to her feet and shove open the door to the study, which had swelled comfortably into the frame. Caroline followed behind her sister. Before they made it into the room proper to turn on the lights, the doorbell rang, and Rebecca headed in the opposite direction to answer. At the exact same time as Rebecca received the word that Henry too had died, the sisters illuminated the study to find two shadows upon the wall, neither of which belonged to them. Both of their brothers had been replaced by these shadows of themselves, with no rational thing creating them. It didn't seem like the sisters had any intention of returning to the study in that house. Both Caroline and Emma stopped speaking for a long while. Caroline stared down into her tea, and Emma seemed to look out at nothing. Nadia had asked, what of Rebecca? And they claimed she didn't want to speak of the things anymore. Not that the two of them wanted to in any capacity, but here they were anyway. 
They didn't wish for us to go in and view the things that haunted them. We can't force them to let us into their family's home, and Nadia didn't wish to turn this into an interrogation on two women with a great deal on their minds. But we have their information for a possible future update, should they recover enough strength to turn on the lights again. Or allow us to. We bade them farewell, letting the sisters leave without a true resolution to this report. We never really get a resolution, though. Do we? Just as those sisters must live with knowing that imprints of their brothers may forever project themselves upon a wall, we must live with the knowledge that things happen without reason. And so our paths departed. Surely we will cross again, but for now, we allowed this divergence. I have not seen Nadia turn on her lamp since the sisters left. Come to think of it, uh, what on earth? Uh, perhaps reporter duty calls. I'm on air, but, oh, this could be juicy. Do excuse me a moment. Don't fret. Channel Vale and myself will be right back. WCRX 88.1 FM will not let you down. WCRX 88.1 FM's Channel Vale is back. Coming live from underground Chicago with your ever-unchanging host, Peyton Zignego. We had an interesting development while on that little break. It is not unusual for people to come to us and have us listen to their woes, as I've said many, many times, but it is unusual for them to leave their woes at our door without them present. I rushed out of here only to be greeted by a folded manifesto of sorts. The author of the papers didn't identify themselves at the opening, just stated that every word they'd written was as true as they could make it, and they weren't sure what else to do but write it all down. Well, I've taken a look, and it's quite of interest to me, and a true journalist never takes a handwritten letter for granted. The letter begins by sharing that the author and their wife, identified as Laura, were newlyweds. They were artists, spending their honeymoon in a sleepy little village. On a trip out to visit a local church, huddled in an overgrowth of trees, they found a sleepy little cottage, and fell in love at first sight yet again. According to them, it was perfect. Perfect enough to spend the rest of their honeymoon cleaning it up and picking out furniture to make their forever home inside of it. They paint, and she writes, and they're happy. They also make mention of a second woman, identified as Mrs. Dorman. According to the letter, she was an older town native who they had come in and help with cooking and the likes. I can't judge. I suppose if I was able to, I'd take on the house help as well. Especially since it's noted that Mrs. Dorman was able to share all about the legends of the town's history. This arrangement works for three months as the summer grew into fall, October came and settled around the couple. Things were going well, with no sign of anything wrong, until Laura was found crying in the living room. Our author leapt to their wife, caring to make anything righted, only to learn that Mrs. Dorman had shared she would be leaving at the end of the week. She had told Laura that she needed to visit her ill niece. Doting partners they were, it was resolved that the couple would go out to that old church, the beacon they'd used to stumble upon their dream home, and talk with the older woman. After a walk through the overgrown woods, they made their way inside the building, pausing to admire the stonework and glass windows older than themselves. It's now noted that there was also an altar, 
on either side of which stood a statue carved out of grey marble. Both were dressed as knights, and had names that had been eroded away over the course of time. Eventually, Mrs. Dorman returns to the church to find the couple. They talk, but are unable to convince the woman to stay. She is adamant she must leave before the last day of the month. She'll come back, she says, but refuses to be anywhere near the town on the 31st. With no way to convince her otherwise, it seems they just chat until those statues are brought up again. They manage to get their legend out of her collection. According to this Mrs. Dorman, every year on All Saints' Eve, as she puts it, or the less fun name, Halloween, as we would put it, those statues leave their stone posts and head off into the night on the eleventh strike of the church's clock tower. Nothing but ill intent driving them, she's sure. No proof of such actions are ever left aside from occasional muddy footprints. When asked what they did, she says they return home, but nothing else. She seemed to have stopped sharing anything after that, only said to lock the door. Now, just as she said she would, Mrs. Dorman left on the 30th. The author pauses to remind me as the reader that they are not leaving out any details now, which I do believe. The 31st rolls around, and nothing seems particularly amiss. The couple has a lovely morning, cooking breakfast and spending the day together. At some point, Laura says she feels as though something is wrong. She couldn't identify it, but she felt... bad. Something in the air was off, but she knew not what. All worries seemed to melt away when they played the piano together to get her out of it. As the night pulled itself snugly into place around the couple, our author went out for a late-night smoke around 10pm, leaving their wife alone in the home, door unlatched. The clouds were dark, blocking light from the moon, but the air was cool and refreshing, so even as the tolls of eleven came ringing through the night, they didn't return home. Instead, they began to walk towards the church, passing their home and seeing Laura at the window. With a smile, they continued on their walk. Despite the refreshingly cool atmosphere of the evening, they are startled when hearing footsteps out of view in the forest. They're heavy, but seem only to echo from their own. So surely it's of no concern. Upon arriving at the church without incident, the latch is found undone. But they assure themselves that that must have just been in the fault of their last trip into the old building, for no one really entered the church unless it was Sunday, and today was Friday. Calmly they enter, but that calm shatters upon the sight of empty marble slabs on either side of the altar. Panic rises as the words of Mrs. Dorman become clear in view. Rushing out of the church, our author claims to run into a man named Dr. Kelly, which they add is someone who can confirm the events after this point. We were invited to contact him at our convenience, which we shall once we get through this statement. Dr. Kelly is reported to be a man of sound mind as he tries to calm our author down from their frenzied fears. Though it would seem Dr. Kelly was skeptical of the story he was being told, he resolved to go back to the church, if only to prove to the both of them that nothing was amiss. Upon entering the church for the second time that night, the pair find the altar back in its state from before all this. The knights were back upon their slabs, and it seems for a moment that nothing at all had happened, and perhaps Mrs. Dorman's story just had took a hold on the author's mind momentarily. However, upon inspection, they come to find one of the statue's hands had been broken. According to them, it seemed like someone had been trying to shove the great stone thing. This was the only thing out of the ordinary, however, but unease still settled around the author. Dr. Kelly, a voice of reason, 
resolved to go back to the couple's home, if only to make sure an uneasy author would make it home safely. After a walk back through the woods, they come up to the cottage. The door is just slightly open, and the house is completely lit. Every light turned on, and every candle alight. Laura's coping for when she's frightened. They rush inside and find Laura collapsed on her seat by the window, dead. And in her hand, a stone gray marble finger. The author trails off from there, leaving nothing else but an assurance that this was all true and written in a hurry so as to not forget any details whatsoever. And that's it. An awful turn of events, but one lead. I'll have Nadia see about tracking down this Dr. Kelly. At least that's one way to see if we can't get any more development on her hands or the second set of eyes to have witnessed this. <sighs> Journalism weighs heavily today. Such terrible outcomes with such dark creations and manifestations. But I suppose truth, as it often is, is a creature of fickle nature and a tendency to take many forms. And although we are here to manifest its accuracy, what is accuracy if not what we believe to have experienced? These words are accuracy enough for me, I shall say, but we press onwards to dig deeper, making catacombs out of molehills as we dig ever downwards on a spiral into the reality of it all. Perhaps for now, though, we shall take a moment and look ever upwards into the depths of the abyssal above and wish ourselves an evening unplagued. Let Nadia and I handle the work and allow us to be your one source of ears should you need us. Though, funny enough, I require of you only your ears. An equivalent exchange I quite like in the end. Now, speaking of your ears, as we continue to broadcast each week, that will mean there is more and more content to catch up on if you're just tuning in for the first time. Or lots of content to re-listen to if you're sticking around, which we appreciate. We have a solution kept in perfect working order by field reporter Nadia. Like a well-oiled machine, we post our recorded broadcasts at the same time we air a new one. Saturdays at 7.30pm, sharp. And we make it easy by putting the episodes on every multitude of listening platform you can conceive. So, find Channel Veil, vale, that's Veil, vale, V-E-I-L, on any of the podcast platforms of your choice. Which is perhaps an illusion of choice, because you are listening to the same show regardless, but it feels nice to choose, doesn't it? We think so. Now, despite that, I hope you'll return to hear my voice live again next week. Broadcasting, as always, from Chicago's underground, this has been Channel Vale. Today's newscast was brought to you by WCRX 88.1 FM and both The Shadows on the Wall by Mary E. Wilkins Freeman and Man Size in Marble by Edith Nesbitt. I've been Peyton Zignego, letting the veil between you and the world of the unknown once again slide back into place. For now. Thank you so very much for listening. <laughs>